Welcome back to Many Windows, the podcast about all forms of education for all kinds of listeners. My name is John Cassie, and I'm joined as always by Many Windows' co-host, my dear friend... Jennifer McGlemory. Hey, Jennifer. Hi, John. I haven't seen you in a while. It's been a long time. Yeah. 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 Things are good? Good. Good. I'm I'm just coming off of summer vacation, mm-hmm. so our school year starts pretty early in comparison yeah. to yours. Yeah, yeah. Our kids go back August 12th, so I am back at work, even though we're recording this in July. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> However, I re- recall in June when I was dancing and prancing around, yeah. and you were like, no, I can't oh record. I'm still in school. I can't do this. <laughs> I have so much work. Speaking yeah. of anxiety. No. Speaking, of ex- <laughs> speaking of things that cause anxiety, this whole episode, dear, dear listener, is going to be about anxiety. Why are kids so anxious today? Good grief. What a question, right? Because it's totally different now, isn't it? I think it is. Right? So that's one of the first questions that I want to talk about is, is there a rise in anxiety in teenagers? I feel like I've seen it mm-hmm. in you know my few years or so. Uh, have you noticed any kind of difference, would you say, or just... It's, it's interesting, right? Because I started my career in education in 1997. Now, when did you start? 99. 99. Okay, so we both start tail end of the, you know, of the the 20th century, okay? And we've been going up, you know, year by year, ever more distant from that, okay? And in the last episode, we talked about lots of different ways in which education has transformed in this time. Or has failed to transform while society has transformed. Okay. Right. So my answer is predicated in part on an awareness of, frankly, our previous topic, which is the world is changing. And it's changing at an ever more accelerating Mm. pace. I think everyone feels that level of Awareness of change and awareness of feeling like they don't have full control over uh, how their canoe is moving down this river, right? <clears throat> and, and so the answer is yes, mm-hmm. but I wonder if it's been a kind of frog in the, f- frog in the uh, uh, e- 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 you know, in the saucepan kind of thing. Mm. Like we've been, we're being boiled alive, but we didn't realize it. Yeah. Because... The water was okay 20 years ago. And so, you know, I started in middle school, and then I think around uh, 2010, Mm -hmm. went went down to elementary. Right. Right? And I think the big surprise to me, and I spent in in that end of, like, probably 2007, 2010, I was at the district level. Yeah. So I went maybe from 2007 was the end of my middle school and then I jumped down to elementary, and my the biggest surprise to me was I had parents coming in, their third graders were diagnosed with anxiety disorders. Oh wow! Okay. And that was that was the thing that was really shocking to me was to see it so early. Right. And I think if I hadn't jumped down to elementary, you know, it wouldn't have been so obvious. Um, I don't remember talking a lot about it in middle school before I left. Right. It wasn't something that we were um, creating plans for kids. I mean, there was always a little bit, right? There's always, there's a general um, fear when you go into middle school from elementary sure. on the kids yeah. and the 
students, and we've always done things to help students get over that. Our counselors have, have sure. done right? Sure. But now, I mean, it really is becoming more of an epidemic, it seems like. So then when I jump back up to middle school, right. after seven years at elementary last year, it, we've got kids who can't come to school because oh, wow. of anxiety. You know, they're on shortened days. We're meeting all the time. They're spending the whole day in the counseling office. They can't go to class, you know, and it just seemed mm-hmm. so much more prevalent than when I had left right. 10 something, years earlier. Something objectively seems to have changed, in other words. And then I'm right. wondering, is that just something about Southern California or, you know, uh, uh middle income, middle to upper income kids, you know, Mm -hmm, is is mm -hmm. that just about, so what I did in preparation for this podcast is that was the first thing I wanted to find out. Like, is this really something that's going on? Is there research to say, yes, Mm -hmm. anxiety is on the rise in teenagers, at least that's the question I want to answer or try to attempt to answer. I want to talk about what's the difference between stress and anxiety. Great. I think those two terms get interchanged. Right. Uh, Of course, we want to talk about what we think causes anxiety in teens. And then hopefully we'll end with what are we going to do about it or what can we do about it. Right. Uh, Some uh, low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, try this. Yeah. Do this. Try that. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some things that can be done. I love it. Um, You know, it's interesting. You asked the question, you know, have you observed, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that we know from having been doctoral students together, trained to do education research, which is slippery and difficult mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of it is uh, uh, more qualitative, right, than quantitative, right? That the position of the observer has an influence over what is observed, right? I was a super high-strung, anxious mm-hmm kid, you know, in elementary school and the transition to middle school was really hard for me. So, you know, I'm always mindful that my own perspective, right, might be shaping, right? And I think that Generation X parents are far more anxious than their parents were about school-related matters. And Millennial parents are just now starting to get kids into the system. So I don't really know. But I think we're both Generation Xers. Mm -hmm. I think our generation's orientation to social change is one of anxiety. And so we fixate on educational achievement or attainment as the only way to bulwark yourself against these changes, which means even the tiniest little thing that a baby boomer parent would wouldn't they wouldn't even been aware of it right becomes this major roadblock for a generation x parent whose whose orientation to big sweeping change and disruption is just one of kind of sometimes crippling anxiety in the parent so i'm so glad that you brought up these generational differences uh-huh. because i bought a book that okay. i've been reading this summer okay. and it is all about this oh, neat. we may have to do another episode at some point to that's more broad in scope than just like anxiety but this is um uh, and about like the different generations yeah. right okay yeah, i'm totally so, however down. so let me let me start by saying if you do kind of a cursory um 
uh, ask on Google, you know, <laughs> his anxiety on the rise Alexa, in teens. <laughs> Alexa, everyone driving in their cars right now is pissed at me, right? Siri. <laughs> the fir- one of the first things that you'll find is something from the CDC. Oh, great. And okay. b- the only problem is that the most recent data they have is from 2011-12. Uh-huh. Okay. However, um, uh, in 2011-12, they found that one in 20 children aged 6 to 17 had current anxiety or depression diagnosed by a professional. Wow. Okay? okay. One in 20. Anxiety was actually one in 24. Um, compared to in 2007, it was one in 28. Wow. So it has... There are more kids that have anxiety just from 2007 to 2011, 12. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was the very first thing I, I saw. Then I got this book. Let me read to you the entire title of this book. Go. It's called iGen, like iPhone. Yes. You know, like the iPhone generation. So it's called iGen. Got it. And the title is Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. Oh, wow. What a book. Right? Yeah. So, of course, I bought this immediately when right. I saw it. And who wrote this book? And this is Gene Twang, I think. Is that how would you? Gene M. Twang. That's how I would say it. T-W-E-N-G-E. Author of, author of Generation Me. She writes about, she's a, uh, this is not the, her title. She is a professor of psychology. I'm going to turn turn over the book so I can get this right. But she <laughs> studies um, these this generations. Yes. Right. And she's been doing this for quite a while. Neat. So it's interesting because she really can compare. And so she's got a ton of statistics. She's got these surveys. Let me okay. tell you okay. um, just what I'll be referencing, these surveys. Um, and then there's just all kinds of data. So I want to start mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so she says, I primarily draw from four databases. One is called Monitoring the Future. And has asked high school seniors more than a thousand questions every year since 1976. Oh wow! And queried eighth and tenth graders since 1991. Good so stuff. So there's some great stuff, yep. right? Yep. Um, the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System sounds exciting. That's administered by the Centers for Disease Control. Has surveyed high school students since 1991. The American mm-hmm. Freshman Survey, administered by the Higher Education Research Institute has questioned students entering four-year colleges and universities since 1966. Uh-huh. And then there's this general social survey that examines um, adults aged 18 ever since 1972. Yeah. So she's got some rich mm-hmm. data here, mm-hmm. right? That So as I'm giving you these numbers that I'm going to be giving you in a minute here, that's where it comes from. And I'll maybe I'll even tell you when I know yeah. uh, what specifically. So I first I read a little bit about this, you know, I generation. The I generation, you, you mentioned the millennials and you mentioned um, Generation X and the baby boomers. Those are the most recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I gen, I generation, they're born in 1995. That's the beginning of their 1995 through, I think it's 2015. Okay. All right. So they have become 
high schoolers, they've taken these surveys, right, that I yes, just indeed. mentioned yes, at 8th, 10th, 12th grade and going into college. So they have now, there's enough data now mm-hmm. because they were born starting in 1995 to actually make some statements, I think. Now, objectively, from a, if you look at this from sort of generational perspectives, right, and listeners, you're welcome to, to chime in on this if you, you know, if you disagree with me, but essentially, baby boom, 1946 to roughly 1964, Generation X, 64 to, say, 84, Millennials, 84 to 2004, which would mean this iGen is like a generation-crossing concept, late Millennials and early post-Millennials sharing more in common with early Millennials, which are more like Generation Xers, perhaps. Right, so she's got a little graph that she uses. Okay. Um, Time span when each generation dominated the population of high school seniors and entering college students based on generational birth year cutoffs. And it's, you know, boomers, Gen X, millennium, iGen. And there is some overlap on um, on each one. So, And the other nice thing is I don't want to fail to mention that these surveys are done all across the country, all different race, class. Um, you know, it's really broad in scope. Right. Uh, I feel like one of them said something about out of, you know, 11 million or something like this. I shouldn't even say numbers in case I'm getting them wrong. But I really felt like it was very, very broad. Th- this is the broadest possible yes. sampling. Yes. Right. And it's been that way for 25, 35, 45, 50 I'm sure you can Years. argue the one where it's students going into college. Okay, well, that's right there. You are only sampling students who are going to college. Indeed. But the yeah. rest of them were seniors and then eighth graders and tenth graders. Most of them, most of the data that I'm going to read today is from the that first one called Monitoring the Future, which started collecting data with eighth grade and tenth grade mm-hmm. starting in 1991. Okay. So um, what's in broad terms... Uh, the I generation is growing up more slowly. Okay. So the idea is that that a 15-year-old I-gen kid it behaves a little bit more like a 12-year-old from the generation before. Interesting. And one of the reasons for this, you started to talk about the millennial parents. Yes. You know, and these, um, uh, the generate, the changes. So... In I think it's the baby boomer generation, or maybe even the um, the next. It, the average age that uh, a woman was getting married was twenty one. Right. Right. The next generation, it was twenty five. Right. So what's happening then with the with the previous generations is. Uh, women in particular, I think people are waiting longer to get married. We can totally, say that, 100%. right? We know that. They're waiting longer. Women in particular are having careers first. Yes. Before they're having babies, right? So it used to be that women were um, having a lot more babies, mm-hmm. right? And um, were having them sooner. So now, with this, the, the kids that are being produced in this I generation, their parents are more intentionally having children, right? They're mm-hmm. planning it out. Right. They're waiting. They're maybe the, the moms might be having a career first or while as a parent are continuing their career. Yes. And intentionally having fewer kids. Yes. Therefore, they can focus 
right. their attention on their kids. So we'll get back to that point. Right. I just wanted to throw that at you. And it's sort of their parenting design yeah. is meant to allow them to focus more. That yeah. that's, that's desirable. That's what they want. Um, you know, very little bit of this. Well, it's it's daytime. Please go, get out of my right, house. Right, right, right. Go, go, I'm go play. On the little one, get out. You know, I don't know what the other three to right. five are doing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> With any luck, they're not playing in traffic. Even yeah. though I may have said that. Right. Right. I didn't mean it, but that maybe who, who knows what these children are doing. Right. But I do know that they're out of my house, mm-hmm. and I'm going to call them back in at dinner time. Or when the sun's going down, and I don't expect to see them at any point between now and then. And if I ask for uh, an accounting of the day, I'll get, I had fun. Right, right. Right, or... Played. Or I played. Yeah. Yeah. So, today's teens follow a slow life strategy, is what she calls it. Mm -hmm. Common in times and places where families have fewer children... And cultivate each child longer and more intensely. Interesting. Isn't that a great quote from yeah. the book? Uh, I think that's a great description of what we've got going on right now. The average family has two kids. They start playing organized sports at age three. Yeah. And preparing for college to begin in elementary school. <laughs> Preparation begins, right? Compare yep. that to the fast life strategy where families are larger. Parents are more focused on subsistence, mm-hmm. right, rather, rather than the quality. So um, the fast life strategy involves less preparation for the future, more focus on just getting through the day. Right. Right. So if we think about our own parents. Right. Right. We you can all kind of. So the fast strategy was more common approach in the boomer era, era mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the slow life means that um, kids are actually maturing a little bit slower. However, there's, you know, there's some cultural uh, slippage yeah, yeah, and right. definitions to what that means, what yeah, maturity sure. means, sure, right? Sure. So we want to be careful about that. But in, um, we're going to, we're going to maybe think a little bit about, or just mention that kids are getting their license to drive later and later. That's one of the yeah, big just, markers of independence, yeah, right? That yeah. I mean, when I was when I turned 16, I was at the DMV, right? Full stop. And my peers, yep. We could not wait to get our driver's license and were nagging our parents. And it seems like this generation of kids that's turning 16 and she talks about it in this book and in these surveys and talking to college students and like, no, you know, my parents are driving me around. I'm happy to have them drive me around. I'm in no hurry. Some of them are talking about my parents are forcing me to get my driver's license. That's right. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So there's the driver's license, which is a big uh, indicator of, of, you know, um, growing up, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like growing up in the sense of wanting to take control of your own, uh, in this case, mobility, mm-hmm. right? But asserting an independent space that's separate and distinct from your parents and or, uh, you, you know, from your family. Yeah. Right? For better or for worse. Right. Right. And it's both. So teen pregnancy is down. Right. Okay. Um because kids are not having sex as much. 
And that's related to not driving as early, I think. Totally. Right? Not Totally. How can it not be? Uh, because when you have your own car, it's much easier to lie about where you're going to your parents. Indeed. Right? And now, you know, smartphone apps, parents are really tracking their kids. Right. Way more than than they used to be, be able to. There's also the decline of the teen job. Mm-hmm. For, you know, what's interesting is I think I have thought that because of the economy, the Great Recession, there were no more teen jobs to be had. But the thing is, jobs have come back, right? Since Absolutely. There are more jobs. There are jobs for kids who want them, and kids just don't want them as much anymore. So one of the, she says in here, um, in the late 1970s, only 22% of high school seniors didn't work for pay during the school year. Didn't Didn't work. work. Only 22% didn't work. But by the early 2010, twice as many, 44%, Mm -hmm. didn't work. And it's not because um, uh, of the Great Recession. This is now 2010. The jobs are coming back. It's that kids, and even summer work, they're not doing the summer work. Their parents just, if they ask their parents for money, their parents give them money. Yeah. Even allowances. There was a decline in kids reporting that they get allowance. They just ask their parents for the money, or they're not going out as much. Mm-hmm. Right? They're doing yeah. a lot more kind of online. They're not getting together. Right. Or they're going out with family. So I've kind of digressed a little bit already from my... Um, uh, from my point, but it's this is all tied together, I believe, and there's, I'm going to circle back to right. that. There, there's a there's a difference in the way that these generations of parents chose to parent. The consequences are seen in the way that their children behave. Is the is what I'm hearing, right? And everything that you've described the the driver's license question, the if I ask for money, I get money, right? Oh, I, I have my own credit card, mm. right? Or uh, why would I drive? I, I'm just going to take an Uber. Everywhere? Yeah, any, anywhere, everywhere. Because they also uh, often have fairly prescribed internal boundaries mm. about where they, they go. They'll only go to this shopping mall. Or to this beach, or, 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 right? Whereas, I know when I was a teenager, I had my driver's license the moment I could get it. And I had friends literally all over southeastern Massachusetts. So it wouldn't be at all unusual for me to drive 30 or 40 minutes from my home base to Rhode Island, up to... Boston. I wouldn't drive in the city because, of course, nobody who's sane would choose to drive in Boston. But you drive up to the public transit, you take that. And I would ride public transit on my own, right? Which, you know, nowadays, much less. And on and on, right? So, yeah, this is compelling data. Seems to me. I think so. um, And as much as, you know, I certainly don't want to blame everything on parents. That's not, you know, that's not the goal of this, right? Right. It's not about that. But I've also had parents, I'll give you this example, a parent when her son first went to middle school and she said, I'm going to have him walk home from school. 
I used to walk home from school. You know, this is, he's mm-hmm. in middle school. Mm-hmm. He's going to walk with some friends. And she said, you know, her peer group <laughs> right. shamed her right. for right. it. Right, of course they did. You know, right. there's a story in here. I should have marked it because it was great. It talks about this newspaper article where, you know, like a 12-year-old and 6-year-old are supposed to walk a mile, you know, home from somewhere. And they were literally picked up by the police. Yeah, this was right? in Maryland. Yes. Yes. And I think yeah. it was like 2012 yeah. or something. And these parents were sanctioned. Yes. Right. Yeah, they were investigated for child neglect. Right. So there is there is so much pressure on parents from other parents. Correct. Correct. Right. It is a societal shift. Right. Right. And that I've I've had parents express to me like I don't necessarily want I don't believe in this. I want my kids to have more independence. I want, I used to do these things. I believe they can do it, and they get pushed back from their entire community. Correct. Right? So that's something. But here's what I want. So now we have some data on these kids, right? Yes. From these surveys. So um, the first concerning thing that came out of the monitoring the future uh, is that uh, in general, they so they asked the kids whether they were satisfied with themselves and with their lives as a whole. Mm. And from the 1980s to the 2000s, more teens said that they were satisfied. It kept going up more and more from okay. the 80s to 2000. Each year, it keeps going up. They're more and more satisfied. It's when the first I-generation kids became seniors, high school seniors in 2012 and 2013, satisfaction suddenly plummeted, wow. reaching all-time lows in 2015. Huh. So that's... One of the first inklings that, wait a minute, there's some issues. So then they started asking um, asking them questions about loneliness. Okay. So a stunning, so 31% of, 31% more 8th graders and 10th graders felt lonely in 2015 than in 2011. Wow. That's four years. 31% more felt lonely. I would really want to explore what was going on that might have caused that. And they're lonelier than any time since the survey began in 1991. Yeah, they report feelings of loneliness right. more than... Exactly. Yeah, right, right. So they, it means they agree with statements such as, I often feel left out of things, or uh-huh. a lot of times I feel lonely. Huh. I mean, they, they simply are rating their own loneliness. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's that to me, that's a big piece of the anxiety, right? Fear of being left out. Totally. Right. And I would what the book argues, and it's kind of hard not to, is how smartphones um, and Instagram and these things have exacerbated that. Right. 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 Now, of course, in our previous episode about these kinds of tools, right? when we were talking about how old should your kid be mm-hmm. to get a smartphone, um, our contention was when you as a parent are prepared to help them navigate the uniquely beneficial and corrosive ways those kinds of always-on devices can, can have uh, you know, effects on the way that your kids are growing up. The device, when it is unparented, becomes a uh, like a vampire 
of all attention and all energy sort of directed to that and to these digital communities that are very they're, they're established on the flimsiest of, of connections, mm-hmm. right? So you can have lots and lots and lots of very low-level acquaintances. But that doesn't generate friendship, even for those people who are the most extroverted in focus and therefore like to have lots of acquaintances. They like to be around mm-hmm. lots and lots of people. I'm wired totally differently, right? I want my handful of deeper friendships rather than lots and lots of more um, shallow without without the negative meant there, right? Just, you know, I, I my inclination is to be deeper established than well, less deep, you know? And that's also introverts versus extroverts. Yep. Extroverts get their energy from being around other people. Yeah, exactly. Right? right. Introverts recharge by being alone right. or being, right. you know, with just a few, you know, a couple of people. Right, right. right. And, and as though this device stimulates extroversion. So you're holding um, up um, your smartphone right now. <laughs> as always, the best... The best radio is gestural radio, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, friends. Yeah, I'm holding up my smartphone and gesturing to Jennifer as though I'm making an important point. But it, it doesn't really function as a device that deepens relationships mm. almost always. Yeah. It just, it just creates more connections. Yeah. And a connection is not a relationship if you haven't put any energy into it. And I think the toughest thing is... I remember re- reading, did, um, I don't know if you read Aziz, Aziz Ansari's book, Modern Romance. No, okay, I have not. So he talks a lot. Uh, I mean, he makes a good argument that, like, everyone uses their smartphone to connect, right? So we talked a little bit about on our smartphone episode that by high school, for sure, this is the median right. that kids are using. And so if you try and say as a parent, okay, I don't want anything to do with this, then you are socially ostracizing your child too. That's right. So I think the point we're trying to make is you have to parent your child through this really difficult, treacherous waters. Totally. Right. Whatever your strategies are, you have to use them to the full benefit that uh, you know that your kid's going to get from it. Don't step back. You have to step to the side mm-hmm. and become a much more thoughtful and confident guide. You know, which means that if you're a parent who's uncomfortable with these devices, or if you're unsure of this anxiety, you know, go talk to your principal. Go talk to your school counselor. Don't just talk to your friends because they're not taking a professional interest in this, and your friends are are going to spend their energy maintaining the social cohesion of your friendship, Mm. which means they might not tell you a thing that you badly need to be told. And so that that can be very difficult as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you watched Stranger Things? Yeah. Okay. Did you watch three? Yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking about... Dustin and and his and his preposterous <laughs> radio tower. Up, we're gonna get up to the highest hill in town, right? And and you know, using shortwave, I was using technology of the time, right? But I'm watching it, and I, I'm I'm uh, I'm both that's great loving it, and also thinking, what 
you can't make this show now about yeah. <laughs> set in the now because the entire sort of philosophy, everything that undergirds this program is so of its time. Mm-hmm. Of my time, right? Yeah, you know, because right. you know, uh, basically, that's why everyone loves the, these shows. Right. About the, it's so nostalgic. That's right. When uh, I am the exact age of these kids, <laughs> right? Yeah, I was that old at that time, uh-huh. kind of thing, right? Um, so, uh, you know, this this sort of speaks to. Well, I mean, of course, what caused us anxiety? You know, yeah, the Soviets, right? You know, nuclear bombs. So that's that's. An important little segue I want to make really quickly yeah. is I've had parents say to me, you know, as we have to do active shooter drills, right, right, and these kind of things, and parents have said to me, you know, isn't that anxiety producing? The fact that you're thinking about this and talking with kids about this. Mm-hmm. And what I said most recently to someone was, you know, we've, we've always, when I was a kid, we were always doing earthquake drills. Yep. Right? Because there was this, at any time, we had no idea. The whole building could collapse on top of us. Uh, we could have this earthquake completely outside of our control. Before that, in the 50s, they were uh, doing you know, nuclear war drills, like somehow getting under a desk and pulling the blinds in your classroom was going to save you from nuclear war. You Makes know, all the, the difference. When the Russians bombed us, right? Right, right. Um, And even I know some people have told me that uh, they practice putting on gas masks. Sure, yeah. Some, right? some, some students did, yeah. So there have always been these big events that we have prepared for in school mm-hmm. that are completely outside of anyone's control. Right. Right? And a lot of times we think that those are the most anxiety-producing things for kids. But if that was the case, then I feel like these numbers would be fairly consistent over time. Mm-hmm. Right? So that when the, the kids that were worried about nuclear attack from the Russians and after we have earthquakes, you know, a bunch of earthquakes and, you know, the active shooter, that, that would all be a... I would think about the same. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Um, you know, I think that there may be something existentially different about the experience of uh, skyscrapers collapsing, school shootings, and mass violence. Uh, in you know over the last 20 years maybe something existentially different to that than confronting the soviet menace right or uh you know if you live in southern california the inevitable mm-hmm. having to pay attention to earthquakes or northern california indeed right i mean we never did any earthquake drills in in massachusetts but but tornadoes, i ducked and covered yeah you know at tornado drills mm-hmm. yeah we did a lot of those in my early career in in dallas Right, you know, a special room was built in the school, in the upper school, to house the entire division, four hundred students, in the event of a of a tornado. It was tornado proofed. Mm-hmm. Right, we had to practice getting everyone in there mm-hmm. and being calm so that you could actually, right, uh, right. take instructions and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, my former school in Pittsburgh, by virtue of the school being right next to a rail line that routinely mm-hmm. carried 
extremely hazardous materials. We had drills that were about escaping uh, essentially poisonous gas. Indeed, one drill that we had was essentially everyone get into any car that is anywhere and drive to this point in the heights Mm -hmm. because anything that's going to be on that train is going to settle in the valley. Okay. It won't go up that high. So we have to get above the gas line, right? It's like the tsunami zones. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I, I, I wonder, I hope that listeners who maybe have a, have a take on this might be able to direct us to that, to some thoughts on that existential question. And the whole reason we have drills and you had drills, yep. it was not was not just for the practicality. Right. It is, there is something calming and reassuring about trying to prepare for these things. Yeah. Right? That are ultimately almost futile. However, uh, you feel like, okay, if we have drilled, if we have prepared, if we know what to do in a crisis, there is something calming and anxiety reducing That's about right. just that alone. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Therefore, it's worth still doing. So absolutely. So we, we keep doing it. Um, I think it's much more, as we talk, what the causes for that, it's much more about this fact that kids are not driving. They're not mm-hmm. having jobs. They're not earning allowances right. and managing their own money. I was talking to one of our mutual friends and saying we were going to do this episode on yep. why our kids so anxious nowadays and she says oh it's the disempowerment of youth Uh uh-huh and i've been sitting with that for a while because it has been i remember when i went to elementary school and i'd read something about um chores when is a good time for kids to have chores right i wish i could nine months or nine months or 12 right what age you know and what should they be doing and i pass this out at a pta meeting and it was like from two to six, they should be, you know, right. picking up their toys and putting them in a designated location. They should be taking their plates after they've eaten to the sink. Right. right? Then it was like, I don't know, seven to ten. I'm making these numbers up right now, but like seven to ten, they can wash the dishes, they can dry the dishes, they can do their laundry, they can start to help with meal prep. Right. You know, all of these make things. Make a bed. And I da, make, da, da, make right. yeah. yeah. And then it was like, you know, probably twelve to seventeen, they're practically like fixing the car and <laughs> Repainting the house and roofing. Not quite, but it really made an argument for um, chores not being negative, but that this is your contribution to the household in which you live. Correct. Everybody in this house contributes. Right. It's not mom's job to prepare the meal, set the table, clean up everything while everybody else does what? goes to their chair in front of the television or their room in front of the computer device, whatever, while mom's working in the kitchen. Right. Right? That this intrinsically gives kids a feeling of power. Yeah. Helping out in the best possible way. That's right. Right? Not power as a negative, but that they feel that they're contributing. All, anything that you read about how do you increase happiness, like Mm -hmm. in everybody, right? Mm -hmm. You need to have purpose. Right. And that chores, or whatever you want to call it, is about purpose. You have purpose in this house. You are a contributing member of this household. And, you know, there is something 
I'll speak for my, myself. There is something extraordinarily satisfying about observing a certain disorder, applying your own efforts to it, and the disorder is gone. Yeah. This is why I love folding laundry. <laughs> because it's a big jumble of clothes, and then when you're done, Marie Kondo style, if you've learned how to <laughs> fold Marie Kondo style, well, you have all these beautiful little squares and rectangles. But that came about because of my efforts, yeah. right? Yeah. And so yeah, I think that's a huge point. Growing right? up, it, my responsibility was Saturday morning, my grandmother actually came over and she helped my mom clean, and my responsibility was to vacuum and dust the living room. A reasonable set of tasks? I remember vividly that I took everything off of every table. Lamps, tchotchkes. Right. You know, the only thing I didn't take was, like, I didn't take the TV down. But I took, like, everything off of the table. This is every Saturday. Sprayed Uh the surface, you know, with my pledge. Right. And then wiped it down and then put everything back on the table. I moved sofas and lounge chairs to the middle of the room so that I could vacuum all around the perimeter, and then I moved them back. I'm, like, in third and fourth grade at this point. Were you raised in the Victorian period? (laughs) (laughs) I just have this memory of me moving furniture so that I could vacuum behind it, and this is, like, every Saturday. Awesome. And why did it? My mother did not require this of me. I can, I just wish I should ask her now because I'm sure she walked by the living room and just like rolled her eyes and was like, what is she doing now? And went, oh, well, you know, that's what she's going to do. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does, it does call your level of attention to detail into, uh, into stark relief, doesn't it? So there you go. That's shame uh, on you for not moving the television, by the way. I know, right? Uh, really bothers me to this day that there was dust behind that television, John, <laughs> that I had to grow up who, with. Who knows what was under that television? Right. Elvis, you know. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, Classic. So, you know, just this, the fact that kids aren't, I mean, I got my first job. 14. Yeah. And in I was a nursing probably, home. I was probably babysitting before then. Yep. In the yep. neighborhood. And then I worked at my old elementary school. I did after school daycare. Sure. I also Little played, paper route, that I kind played of thing, right? varsity basketball. So I would go, I'd get out of school at 3 o'clock. I'd get to the elementary school by 3.15 or 3.30. I worked till 6 in their after-school daycare program. Right. I think I must have gone home and eaten something because I had basketball practice at 7. You must have done. And, you know, somewhere I squeezed in homework. Um, you know, but it all got done. And another interesting thing in this book about the, um, the surveys, one of the things that people think it's, oh, the academic requirements on kids, the academic pressure and strain to get into college mm. is so much greater, right? The kids are doing more homework, all of this. <clears throat> this survey data has not proved that to Doesn't be true. Doesn't confirm it. Right. Interesting. Kids are actually doing less homework than they were 10 and 15 years ago. Interesting. So that doesn't appear to be a cause. Right. Yeah. Because I think there's, you know, um, uh, oh gosh, what was that movie that came out, you know, that was kind of blaming all of the ills oh, uh, on homework? <laughs> not not waiting for Superman. What? Well, there's been a number yeah. of movies that came out, right? It was before that, Waiting for Superman. It was, but it was something like that, right? Yeah. Anyway, so we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, folks. Us. Someone could tell us. Yeah. Um, but you know, there was all that, and then 
all of the schools were kind of reevaluating their homework policies. And, you know, we have a lot less homework. I think there's individual situations, kids that are taking a lot of AP classes, but I think that has always been. So the, the idea is that there's not a lot more now. Like, what's causing this sharp rise right. in this anxiety now? and de- depressive symptoms? It doesn't, you know, all of these other things are not also on the rise. Um, so that doesn't seem to explain it. So for me, it's this this real idea that kids don't have a lot of say over the things in their life. And Race to nowhere. Thank you. Thank Race you. to nowhere. Race yep. to nowhere. That's it. I remember reading an article in an education magazine probably 10 years ago, and it was called Students at Bat. And it okay. talked about how... When they were a kid, you know, in their generation, everybody in the neighborhood would come out into the street and they'd bring a bat or a broomstick or a couple of mitts and they would organize a pickup game, baseball or basketball or whatever. And then kids would have to work out the rules for themselves. You know, they they had to work out how to share their limited resources. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody's playing on adult Led right teams right. There's no kid to kid facilitation, so there's no uh, learning how to negotiate what I'm prepared to to fight for, what I actually don't really care about, where I'm gonna, uh, or, you know, wh- wh- what am I gonna, uh, what am I gonna insist on. How am I going to share this? Those kind of things. Right. Yeah. So kids are not given the opportunity to practice those important skills. Indeed. Because they're joining pretty much all the activities now that kids are joining are adult-led. Yeah, they're all adult-facilitated. The adults are setting the rules, teaching the rules, monitoring and refereeing the rules. Right. Whereas in past generations, kids have done that for themselves. Indeed. And that's empowering. And it's a critical skill. Yeah for adult negotiation of the complex realities of our world. And when you get into middle school right. and have difficult social situations, mm-hmm. can you navigate them if you have never practiced that before? Correct. Not to mention we see a lot of parents stepping in right. at the elementary level and the middle school level. I don't know, the high school. Yes. Stepping in, I've got, you know, I hear reports of, Parents, you know, one a child goes home, complains to her mom about another kid. That mom calls the other kid's mother. You know, instead of encouraging the kids to work it out and giving them some tips, the adults are trying to work out conflicts for the kids. Right. Disempowering. Right. right. As I was saying to my, my mother and sister-in-law yesterday, we were just sort of chatting about school stuff. Uh, you know, my sister-in-law's kids are off to, uh, to university. They're freshmen, right? And I said, uh, you know, I'll tell you this, the total number of calls in my career I should have made already to parents saying, please do not call this other parent about this issue related to your son or daughter. Your call will make things worse. Mm -hmm. Let your kids work it out. This is not a level, this is not a crisis a real crisis. It's a temporary crisis for your kid, but the total number of calls that I should have made already in my career on that topic is zero. 
I shouldn't have ever had to do it. Mm -hmm. And yet I've done it uh, more than half a dozen times, six, eight, ten times. Don't don't call this person. It's going to make it worse. It's going to make it worse for you and your kid. Don't do it. Well, yeah. I I think I heard Dr. Drew. I'm going to see if I can remember exactly what he said, but it was something, this great phrase that I I may have told you. I don't even know if I've said it before, but he said, we have lost our tolerance for ordinary discomfort. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Parents in their um, desire... For their to make their kids happy to to create well-adjusted happy kids. Right, right. Because that's the goal. That's the goal. That's all of our goals. They think that the way that they're going to do this is they are going to solve the problems for their kids. Right. So that they don't have the problems. Right. But they've got to ha- get experience, just like we talked about our cell phone. Uh, episode our smartphone episode is like you've got to sometimes give them this tool and you've got to let them work with it so that they can learn how to negotiate this new world the same thing has to happen in social situations and classroom situations Mm -hmm. to a degree of course but that line where parents get involved in a middle school or high school social situation it has it has started to creep towards more smaller and smaller incidents. Indeed. Right, yeah, right, right. Because there are absolutely incidents that happen at schools that parents need to call the administration and get involved. And Full unfor- stop. Unfortunately, there are egregious things that happen, yeah. right? I am not in any way saying a parent should never call the school, it, right? It's, it's the elevation of the low grade That's to a... To a to a to a life crisis mm-hmm. that we're talking about, there's plenty of things that happen that are actual crises. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes schools will take what is an actual crisis and will go the opposite way. They'll minimize mm. that to be a day-to-day reality, when in fact it's an it's an existential harm. Yeah. Right. So schools and parents have to work together. We both want the same thing, but it doesn't help a 12-year-old to never have an opportunity to interact with another 12-year-old on a 12-year-old's terms, and it probably doesn't help if a 12-year-old is always in spaces mediated by adults. Because when you give them that cell phone, if you don't mediate it, they don't know how to use it. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to interact with each other without your guidance. Yeah, good point. I wanted to make sure we answered the question, what's the difference between stress and anxiety? Go. Okay. Stress is a response to an external cause, okay, such as an upcoming deadline or a test or a new experience. Mm-hmm. Going to middle school. Right. Stressful. Right. right? Okay. There is prolonged stress, like if you live or work in a difficult environment. Yes. But stress is really a natural, normal part of life. There are absolutely appropriate times you are going to face stress in your life. That's normal, and it's not something to be fearful of. Right. Okay? Right. So, And stress can be good because when you... 
uh, are preparing for that big test, mm-hmm. or if you're a performer or an athlete and you f- you feel stress, your body's response to that is to flood. Uh, your brain f- uh, floods the rest of your body with endorphins so that you can perform better, run faster, right? right? Uh, all of these things. That right. It really heightens all of your senses when you're right. in that stress response mode. You know, right. It heightens your senses so that you actually do better right. in that situation. So there is good stress. Um, anxiety is a person's reaction to stress. And its origin is internal. Mm-hmm. Okay? So anxiety continues after the concern or the threat has passed. Okay. Okay? Characterized as a persistent feeling of apprehension or dread in situations that are not actually threatening. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. All right? So it's it's the sort of uh, taking your healthy, normal stress response and applying it because of your own internal commitment to apply it in all sorts of situations and contexts where it's unhelpful. We're overusing the word anxiety. I see. Okay. Uh, that's my opinion. Okay. That we're overusing, that we're using anxiety even when we mean stress. I and see. And we think that all stress is bad when that's not necessarily the case. And we yeah. have to start talking a little bit about these distinctions. Yep. Because if we can understand that and let kids understand that that uncomfortable feeling that you have that's a stress response, everybody gets that. I've had that. You've had that. Your favorite actor has that before they perform. Your favorite athlete has that. Right. Like we all have that and it's okay. It's right. normal. Right. And you'll get through it and it'll be fine. Right. Right. Um, because if you don't get over those things, that produces the anxiety. Indeed, indeed. Um, Now, there is definitely, for some of the causes of anxiety, there is a biological factor. Some people are Mm -hmm. genetically predisposed and have some wiring in their brain that makes them more anxious. So that is absolutely something, and I don't want to minimize that, but there's definitely things that you can do, and we'll get to that next. And there's, you know, psychological factors there's, you know, temperament. Everyone's born with a different temperament, and there, right. there are environmental factors. And one of those is anxious parenting creates anxious kids. Mm-hmm. And so if you are already hardwired to be an anxious person because right. of your biological factors or your right. temperament, so you're passing on those traits through biology to your kids. Indeed. And... Then, if you're not careful, you're also passing along the environmental factors. Yeah, right. right. Because you've created an environment. Right. Where so it's I, I tell my teachers all the time. It's like fake it till you make it. You know, like if you're really feeling that way, we can't let our kids always see that because that is more anxiety producing for them or more stressful if they see us being really stressed out over minor things. Correct. Right. Correct. And another thing that I read that I thought was interesting was perfectionism often underlies anxiety. So perfectionism causes it. Or perfectionism... Underlies anxiety, meaning if you have a child who is a perfectionist, which is correlated with giftedness, right? Yes, Okay. They are often going to be more anxious. I understand. They are trying always to achieve 
this uh, this standard that they have set for themselves that's unachievable. Right, that's unrealistic. Right? They're, yeah, they're setting right, right. themselves up for fail- failure. Right. So everything they produce, they feel it's not good enough. Right. Right. And, yeah, yeah. And everybody else is doing this just fine and having no problem with this, and it's just me. And that's all that survey, mm-hmm. you know, that the, some of those statements from the beginning of right. the show. Right. 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 So what do we do about this? Yes, anxiety's on the rise. You know, um, what are we going to do? So okay, I give think, us our marching orders. Here now. we go. So one of the things we got to do is start talking about good stress. Yep. Labeling anxiety and also kind of distancing ourselves from overusing that term. Uh-huh. Let me give you an example of something that I had an interaction. I think it was at a Christmas party or something with... With my friend's husband. We were all standing. We are all about ready to leave. And okay. he says, my friend's husband says, I have social anxiety. You know, I'm so, I'm so nervous about going up to the valet and, like, you know, giving them money and asking them to get the car. Okay. This man is a lawyer who is super well regarded in his field and travels around to different countries. And, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, I don't know that you have real clinical social anxiety. Yeah. You're nervous in the situation. It's a new situation. Maybe, you know, you're not sure what kind of tip to give this person because there was no sign that told you how much are you supposed to tip them? You you know, so you're feeling a little nervous about that. Let's not over label things. Right. There's an interesting movement. um, I think where people are talking much more about their anxiety. Indeed. Which is healthy and what they're doing and how they cope and m- normalizing it a little bit more. Yep. And the taking of medication and in adults, you know, taking and of talking medication. About it. And talking about it. And yeah. revealing that they do this. And I think that's all healthy. But again, as that pendulum swings, I think we start to overuse and kind of over self-diagnose mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to start learning a little bit more Labeling it, and I think dis- right. distinguish between right. stress and anxiety. I think right. that's an important piece. Right. A lot of applying of of unproductive terms mm-hmm. to oneself. Mm-hmm. Right. That no, you do not have obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. 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 Oh, right. We all. Yeah. Right. So many people right. say, "Oh, I'm OCD." Right. right. You do not have social anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Because if you did, yeah, it would look like this, yeah. which is not what you have. And it's not what you're doing. It, right. Right. Crippling. Right, right. So labeling is important, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching teaching a young person who's just had a stressful moment the good parts of that stress. Mm-hmm. Here's what your body did, right? You felt this and then this and then this. All of that is 100% normal because what you were just experienced was very exciting. It was very stimulating. And your body wanted you to be ready for it. Perfectly normal. Yeah. Right? Nobody says those things. Right. But they might be productive to try. Right. Right. And never use the word anxiety to describe those things mm-hmm. because that's just a what you just experienced was a normal response to a stressor. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. That was stressful. Yeah. Encountering a stressful situation. Right. Is, is a, what life is. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. it, it really is. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, another great tip is previewing anxiety-provoking situations. Okay. So, for example, yeah. we know these things that are anxiety-producing, like starting a new school, starting uh, middle school. So what do we do? We encourage kids, 
we have a number of opportunities for them to come and visit the school. We do right. school tours. Okay. Um, we have, you know, the their, their schedule pickup day. We have an orientation day. And then for parents who reach out to me and just say, my, my student is really, really nervous, I say, bring them here. You know, let's do an individual tour. Right. Let's, let's get their schedule. Let's do a mock, right. you know. Right. Walk through the day. Through, right. uh, so many, you know, a real, real typical thing coming to middle school is that uh, kids are afraid they're not going to get from one Absolutely. class to the next in right. five minutes. That's right. right. That's right. So guess what? Come to school. Say you have to go from room 304 to 610. All right. Let's get a stopwatch. Let's walk slowly. Right? And see if we can get there in five minutes. You're going to get there in less than one minute is what you're going to find on the stopwatch. (laughs) Look at that. Okay. You know, what if you stopped at the bathroom? Let's try that. What if you need to stop at your locker? Let's try that. Oh, you have ample time. So whenever you can, and I think a lot of parents who have kids that are prone to being really anxious do some of these things. Um, Even now, like with Google Maps and... You know, all of these things, you can preview a lot of environments because environments, yeah, right, can be yeah. stressful. Preview environments and talk about them. Visit whenever you can. But uh, if you can use some tools and even just talking through and role play those kind of right. difficult situations, right. um, that's a great example. I always say, um, well, I say fake it till you make it, the official uh, terminology for this is model confidence. <laughs> I just found that in my notes. I was like, oh, is that what? Oh, okay. No. Let me work that Okay. In. Model okay, confidence. We're going to yeah. model confidence because kids do pick up on your emotional distress. Totally. I remember so vividly that one of my high school jobs that I had was during the fair, I worked at the Budweiser Clydesdale booth. Okay. So I was not old enough to pour or consume beer, but the Budweiser booth at the fair sold tchotchkes, and that and I manned that booth. And you were the tchotchke yes, uh, clerk. Yes. <laughs> and I was right next to the Clydesdales. Uh-huh. So, and we had this giant, you know, Clydesdale statue. It's not cement. It's like plastic, right? That's there, too, as well. Like a figurine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An action figure. And I'll never forget noticing this, like, two-year-old kid, you know, bump into it or something or fall down. Or, and he, his first reaction was he was shocked. Was right. Like, oh, my gosh. I just fell down. Like, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> right. And then, and he was like... Okay, he was just kind of processing, and then he looks up at his mom, and his mom was so clearly in distress about the fact that he had just fallen. Right. He looks, he bursts out into tears. Right. He did not cry because he fell down. Right. He started to cry when he saw his mom's reaction to him falling. That's right, that's right. Oh, you've just told me that this was something that I really... uh, Right. And so I'm going to treat it that way. Oh my gosh, this is so scary now. Right. My mom has reacted this way. I'm so, this is scary. Right. And if you think about like a kid learning to walk, you know, when, when your child's learning to walk, how many times did they fall down and what do you do? You're like, it's okay. You know, kid. right. You do right. that. You model that confidence because right. you want them to learn to stand back up and walk a little further. Right. Right. If every time your child stumbled and fell to the ground when they were learning to walk. If you picked them up and didn't let them walk again, they would never learn to walk. Right. And that 
that example is very true for social situations. Yeah, that's if true. Every time your kid is in a social situation that that where they stumble and they fall, if you act like it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world for them. Right. Which is not to say that you shouldn't intervene and help them if things are if things are bad. Right. Or if they're struggling. But you you help them from the perspective of building up their strengths, not from trying to sympathize, oh, back in my day, you know, this kind of stuff, right? You have to teach coping skills. Indeed. If you don't know what some of those coping skills are, you better start Googling it. You better figure it out yourself. Yep, because... Your job as the parent is to model confidence. Yep. Yep. And, you know, really teach teach those coping skills. So think about it. How do you, and one of the best things you can do when you're having a conversation, you know, with your teenager about a rough situation that they were in, right. think about a situation you had like that and say, you know, I had a situation like that too. Mm-hmm. Here's how I handled it. Here's how it worked or didn't work. Right. Th- analyze some of those things for yourself so that you can come up with what are some of those strategies that I use. And sometimes it is ignoring and, you know. And if that's what it is, that's what it is. Yeah. Right. You as the parent have to have the the uh, sensitivity. Mm-hmm. You know, your antenna has to be attuned well enough mm-hmm. so that you, you can make the right call. But mindful that you might get it wrong sometimes, but... But you have to be really sensitive to what's going on because what's needed is different in every circumstance. Right. Right. You don't, as a parent, just one arrow in your quiver is not enough. Right. Right. And that's something I think you can talk with your friends about. Totally. Ask them. Yeah. And I think the the last thing is you have to practice exposure. What does that mean? So it's basically the opposite of scooping them up and making sure they don't ever have to face mm-hmm. that horrible situation yeah, again, right. right? It is like, Place okay, the minute. this was hard. Yeah. This was a real, this, this is something I've observed is very difficult for my child to do. We have to now break this down into small bits and start tackling it. We have to right. practice them. So, you know, if you had... A child who, um, I, I don't want to go into too many sensory things because of a lot of sensory uh, uh, integration disorders. Yeah, you know, right, sound right. And, but, you know, what do they do? What, do, what does our OT do with kids that are really tactile, mm-hmm. tactically sensitive? They, they do brushing on right. their skin, skin brushing. So it's exposing them to that stimuli that is upsetting to them, but... Um, Incrementally, right, right, right. So I, I think it seems like a strange thing for parents to think that they would, once their child had a terrible experience with something, that they would then um, have them experience it again. But if hey, you're let's thinking do about that again, when right. you know when your your kids were children and learned to eat different foods, they didn't like them the first time. You right. kept trying. Right. right. So many things they did. You did with them developmentally as they were learning to walk and eat things, and um, uh, you found natural. But now that they're teenagers and they're having 
difficulty in social situations, you don't apply those things that you knew to do when they were toddlers. Right. They always say that the teenage years are their second, you know, ta- it's their twos all over again. Right. Right. Their brain development is the same as when they were two years old. Right. The same kinds of things are happening in their brain. Right. So apply some of those strategies that you used when they were two and throwing tantrums. Right, right, right. <laughs> did right. you feed into it, you know, or did you say, we need a timeout, you know, and right. then come back and say, you don't get to behave like this. And then right. you're going to make them be exposed to that situation, undesirable right. situation again, so that they can get past it. Right. And I think that's the that's the big takeaway for me yeah. is just thinking about in that terms of like when they learn to walk, when they learn right. to eat a variety of things, you know, all of these things in there that you wouldn't balk at doing when they two-year-old. were, you know, one, two, and three. Right. Right. Because you knew because there was a book that you read that said. <laughs> right. And then in their teenage years, you know, you apply all of those same skills that you had developed. It's right. just... Different problems. Right, and so, right. And they're social problems now right, for a, right. lot, a lot of the times. Right. And sometimes you're going to have to talk out with your kid what you're doing mm. and, you know, kind of, re- you know, reveal the secrets of the guild, so to speak, right? Because they might be more mistrustful or they might not understand that you actually have thought this through and you have a plan. And what you're trying to do is to help them... Uh, rise into the best version of their adulthood that they can have. Mm -hmm. And that only happens if they rise into it. They're the, they're the ones in the, in the proofing drawer, not you. Right. So if you can't help them to learn how to manage it on their own so that they expose themselves to a thing that is difficult. Well, then the 30-year-old adult child you end up with will not be the one that you had that you had intended to get or that you might have gotten if you had followed a different set of strategies. There's a couple of great books that I can't think of the authors right now, so we'll have to post this, but the, yeah. that I've read, that I've loved, Blessings of a Skinned Knee. Isn't that Wendy Mogul? I think, I think you're right. Yeah, she's dynamite. That's fantastic. Yep. And um, How to Raise an Adult. Are you familiar How with How to one? Raise an Adult. I have in my... I, yeah. Yep. I have it in my... Julie... Oh, she's the former dean at Stanford. Oh. Yeah. That's a really good book. I would recommend... You know, it's... I keep joking that I want to write a book called, you know... What to expect when you're expecting a middle schooler? <laughs> I'm going to use the exact format of yeah. you know uh, 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 of what to expect when you're expecting. And um, but these books are are I feel like that's what they could be renamed. Julie Lithcott Hames, awesome. Uh, the uh, uh, former dean at uh, uh, at Stanford. She was the dean of freshmen. Oh. This book came out in 2015. Okay. And, and what it documents is um, uh, she noticed a, a, uh, a sudden rise uh, in the involvement of parents in the lives of freshmen entering Stanford. And their unpreparedness. Uh, right, right. Not academically the, necessarily. Socially. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, adult-wise, right. Uh, 
the um, the the after the colon, how to raise an adult colon, break free of the overparenting trap and prepare your kids for success. This is a dynamite book. I've recommended it a lot. Yeah. Um. So. All right. What's our, so what's our what's what's our time on this one? One hour seventeen. Okay. Pretty good for us. That's pretty okay, good for us. You know? Yeah. Um, I'll. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll end by saying, listeners, clearly I was looking up Julie Lithka Hames' uh, name on the internet, and I was typing into Google, how to raise Anne, and the what it wanted me to click was how to raise an outdoor cat, <laughs> which has its own set of stresses and anxieties and confidence modeling cat raising. So you just moved. That's right. Do you have a cat that no. you now need to... No. Turn into an outdoor cat? I wonder why Google thinks you need a cat. Yeah. John. Well, we have a cat. Okay. But it lives with my mother oh, in, okay. in, in, our, in our house up in Ventura County. All right. Yeah. Um, and there it is. Folks, enough of uh, this cat talk. Um, we'll <laughs> our be- next episode is <laughs> when's the best time to buy a cat? That's what we'll focus on. Yeah. Yeah. What age should you get your child a cat? Yeah. Next week on Cat Fancy Podcast. <laughs> We'll be talking more about cats, which is all you ever wanted to hear about. Um, Folks, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes and to give us your thoughts on our webpage uh, and in our Facebook group. Until next time. See you later. Cheers.